When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 157 years since the last black slaves learned they were free in America. Always remember, the people in power kept the truth from them. The lead starts right now. Exposing the plot, the January 6th committee says a scheme to overthrow democracy went well beyond rioters at the Capitol. They planned to show America how Donald Trump was allegedly involved in a fraudulent electors scheme after he lost the election. Plus, stuck and stranded airlines cancel more than 5,000 flights over the weekend and warn of more cuts on the way. What's going on with this messy travel situation? Will it interrupt your summer plans? And Pride Month targeted. Notorious extremist groups getting violent as they take aim at the LGBTQ community. Are some politicians providing cover and even incitement? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is preparing its fourth public hearing this month, set to begin tomorrow. And this time, the committee says... They will show evidence Donald Trump was involved in a specific scheme, this one to submit fraudulent slates of electors, presumably in hopes that any confusion would throw the matter from Congress back to the states. Tomorrow's hearing will feature Georgia election officials Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling. Raffensperger, of course, is the Georgia Secretary of State, whom Trump repeatedly pressured to find some 11,000 votes so Trump could falsely claim he won the state. We will also hear from the Arizona House Speaker, Rusty Bowers, whom Rudy Giuliani allegedly pressured to let his state's legislature pick its electors instead of the Arizona voters. Now, as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, one committee member is telling CNN there are several other high-profile people they still want to talk to, including former Vice President Mike Pence. Three Republicans will be the focus of the January 6th committee's next public hearing, all expected to testify about how Trump pressured them to overturn Trump's loss at the polls in their states. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger will talk about this phone call with the former president just days before January 6th. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more that we have. Raffensperger's deputy, Gabe Sterling, will also appear. And from Arizona, the Republican Speaker of the state's House will testify as well. Rusty Bowers said Trump asked him directly to replace the electors in the state with a rogue slate. I talked to him a couple of times, and, and they, were, they had asked me to take uh, some steps that I just wouldn't do, and I told him I, 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 I voted for him, I campaigned for him. But I told him I wasn't going to do anything illegal. Bowers also received emails from Ginny Thomas, urging him to set aside Biden's election win by replacing Democratic electors with a Republican slate. The committee has asked Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, to testify. Ginny Thomas issued a short response to a conservative publication saying, I can't wait to clear up misconceptions. I look forward to talking to them. 
Thomas was the only justice to vote against releasing White House records to the committee in January. Now, Schiff says Thomas should recuse himself from any future cases involving the committee. Justice Thomas, to avoid even the appearance of impropriety, should have nothing to do with any cases relating to January 6th. Uh, particularly regarding our investigation. A new poll out from ABC News after three hearings shows nearly six in ten Americans believe former President Trump should be prosecuted. It's a case the committee is making. The president is guilty of knowing what he did, seditious conspiracy. What we're presenting before the American people certainly would rise to a level of criminal involvement by a president. But so far, DOJ refusing to comment, though prosecutors recently complained that the committee's refusal to hand over all of its records complicates their job. Committee member Zoe Lofgren says the dispute could be resolved as early as July, once the hearings conclude. And meanwhile, Schiff is leaving the door open to subpoena Vice President Mike Pence. There are still key people we have not interviewed that we would like to. We're not taking anything off the table in terms of witnesses who have not yet testified. Now, the former vice president, he has been notably silent about the January 6th committee. He did speak at an event at the University Club of Chicago this afternoon, but he kept his comments focused on inflation, high gas prices and supply chain shortages that he associated with the Biden administration. And Pence touted the economic accomplishments of the Trump administration. Jake. All right, Jessica Steiner, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead, U.S. homeland and national security officials are worried about how Russia might significantly exploit the current political climate and stir even more distrust in the November midterm elections. Here now, CNN's Edward Isaac DeVere. Isaac, you spoke with five current and former U.S. officials in there are a few scenarios they think Russia might be considering. Tell us what they are. Well, Jake, yeah, that's right. There is a sense here that there will there is an evolution and a sophistication in the Russian efforts here and that what they will do, not just uh, go into the systems, but go into the systems all around the country for elections and try to get caught. Make it so that they do it clumsily, they get caught, it's exposed, and then use their disinformation networks to put out that information and make it seen even more distrust and feed more conspiracies into uh, how people are thinking about this. But really, the goal here, as always with the Russian efforts, is to turn Americans against themselves, to make Americans uh, feel lack of faith in America and American democracy. And, and that's how they, these officials tell me they think that this uh, may look by November. And the, the officials you spoke to, we need to under, understand this and, and emphasize this. They stress that these scenarios remain that's hypothetical right. as of now. Uh, that, that's right. Look, uh, they are watching how uh, these efforts are evolving, tracking things with, with intelligence. So far, they have not seen the incursions into these systems. But remember, what we're looking at is about 8,000 different election authorities all around the country, each one of them run by officials on the local level that are basically going up against the Russian intelligence. I talked to one official in one of the most competitive uh, counties in Georgia who said to me, look, I'm not a computer whiz. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm uh, <laughs> relying on my IT guy. We keep our computers off the Internet. But th that, that's the kind of person and that's the kind of office that needs to go up against a full-on Russian effort to uh, undermine our faith in the elections. And as we're seeing, it, it obviously wouldn't take much to throw people more on, uh, uh, off kilter here. Edward Isaac DeVere, thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. Thank you. These next two weeks will also be big for the U.S. Supreme Court with decisions expected on abortion and gun rights and immigration and much more. Why the announcement process is so different this year. Plus, trouble for Ukraine with a key city now under Russian control. What this might mean for the overall fight. That's next.
As we just reported, U.S. homeland and national security officials are worried about how Russia could potentially significantly exploit the current political climate and stir even more distrust in the November midterm elections. Joining us now to discuss, Democratic Congressman Roger Krishnamurthy of Illinois. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, let's start with CNN's Isaac DeVere uh, just reported. Sources are telling him that homeland and national security officials are, are worried about scenarios where Russia could stage small hacks on local elections and purposely get noticed so that would fuel further conspiracy theories, doubts about the midterm elections. How likely is something like this to happen? I think we should take it very seriously, Jake. I think that the Russians would view uh, interference in our midterms as payback for our leadership uh, of the resistance against their invasion of Ukraine. And so we have to be very vigilant for, for their interference. Your colleague, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, is also worried about 2024. He says the election will be a mess with judges that are skeptical of election integrity. Take a listen. There is violence in the future, I'm going to tell you. And until we get a grip on telling people the truth, we can't expect any differently. 2024 is going to be a mess. And uh, wake up, America. Wake up, Republicans, because this is not going to be good for you if you think it is. We've already seen violence, obviously, January 6, uh, 2021. Are you afraid of, of even further uh, election violence? I'm very concerned. You know, I, I lived through that day along with my colleagues, and a bomb was planted 200 feet from my office window, and we live with the scars of that day even, even now. Um, I think that's all the more reason why, you know, we have to uh, make sure that these hearings uh, continue and that the DOJ takes whatever actions are necessary to hold those accountable who are behind and who participated in January 6th. Any delay in that, by the way, will only encourage the very violence that uh, Mr. Kinzinger talked about and that we're all concerned about. Tomorrow will be the January 6th committee's fourth public hearing this month. The uh, the committee says uh, that there's going to be evidence they're going to present that Trump had direct involvement Uh, in that scheme to submit slates of fraudulent electors uh, to Congress and the National Archives, uh, that would create a, I guess, in this theory, uh, it would have just created chaos. Um, If they were able to prove such a thing, that Trump played a role in that, is there criminal liability? What would you like to see in terms of accountability for the former president? Possibly, and it goes to his intent, right? Whether he had criminal intent, whether he had a corrupt intent, And basically what that means is, did he do what he knew to be illegal? And I think that the more that we hear from these witnesses who say that, A, they told him that the elections were free and fair, and B, that what he proposed to do uh, was illegal, such as, for instance, having a set of fake elector slate in many of these different states, um, goes to, you know, illuminating his intent and possible criminal liability. So this is very important. The more that we hear from these officials, the more that we gain insight into his kind of mens rea or his uh, state of mind. There's a new poll from ABC News uh, that has an early look at how the public is responding to the hearings. I do want to note that the sample size for the poll is rather small, only 545 adults. And it was collected on a Friday and a Saturday, which is a very short period of time for people who could respond. Still, be that as it may, the poll found that just one third of Americans say they're following the hearings very closely or somewhat closely. 30% say they're following not so closely. 36% say not closely at all. Are you worried that these hearings 
might ultimately have little to no impact on the public? Um, no, I think they are having an impact. I think that in that same survey, what I also noticed is that there's been an uptick in the percentage of independents, for instance, who believe that President Trump is culpable for that day and actually needs to be charged with a crime. I think it's more than 60% of independents at this point, Jake. And so I, I, I believe that people are paying attention, one in three Americans potentially. Um, uh, would we like to have more? Absolutely. But I do think that it's it's having an impact in the way that my constituents, for instance, are thinking about January 6th. Um, Congressman Adam Schiff told my colleague Dana Bash yesterday that the committee still has several high profile people they'd like to talk to. And interviewing former Vice President Mike Pence is not off the table. Do you think an interview with Pence is necessary at this point? Not necessarily. Uh, You know, we've heard from his close advisors, and I think that we know uh, from his public statements what Mike Pence uh, believed about that day and how he felt about the president's actions. Um, It would be nice if he were to testify directly. It would further illuminate, for instance, Donald Trump's state of mind. But I think that uh, the uh, testimony of his advisors and others and his public statements uh, gives us a very, very good sense of of what was going on. Finally, I want to ask you about the economy, which is a number one issue for so many Americans. You've been urging President Biden to reduce gas prices by using the Defense Production Act. You say the oil refinery bottlenecks are contributing to high gas prices because the U.S. cannot convert crude to gasoline fast enough. Why hasn't Biden done this already? Well, I think that he's actually looking at it now. We've been told by White House sources that they're looking at our letter and our request for using the Defense Production Act. I think this is absolutely necessary right now, Jake, because right now we're refining about one billion, one million barrels of oil less per day compared to before the pandemic. And so for any amount of crude oil that is being pumped or has already been pumped out of the ground, if you have less refining capacity, that means less gasoline and it means higher prices. So we should absolutely use the Defense Production Act to at least temporarily um, reopen a number of these shuttered facilities that were closed during the pandemic, convert as much crude oil as possible that's already available to gasoline, and lower those pump prices ASAP. I just filled my tank today, uh, Jake, and it was not a fun experience, to say the least. I I keep hearing uh, all these ideas being proposed by Democratic members of Congress and left-leaning economists and writers. And every time the response is that the Biden administration is taking a look at it, does that frustrate you at all? I think that um, the, the, the issue here is I think they're trying to balance uh, using the right tools to deal with the, the right problems at the right time. And um, I, all things be equal, though, I think that you know, moving expeditiously now is so important because um, those high gas prices are having the highest toll on the lowest income people, Jake, um, combined with the fact that so many of these low income people, these low income workers live so far from their places of work. It's a it's a huge burden on them to fill their tank just to get to their place of employment. And that's also uh, going to strain um, our economy further. Illinois Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Let's turn to our world lead now. Ukrainian officials admit they've lost a town on the outskirts of Severodonetsk to Russian control, though President Volodymyr Zelensky says 
that's that strategic city and other hotspots are holding on. We're getting new video of utter destruction in the east of Ukraine, such as this bombed market in a residential area of Donetsk. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now live from Ukraine's second biggest city, Kharkiv, right next to the border with Russia. Sam, you expect shelling there to get even more intense in the coming days. Why is that? Well, uh, Jake, uh, between the top of the hour and now, there have been two very substantial strikes, not that, that not very far uh, from where I'm standing here in Kharkiv. We are under blackout, which is why I'm broadcasting from inside a hotel room. And the reason for that is that there has been an intensification of attacks against Kharkiv. It's still nothing on the scale that did so much destruction early on in this war, particularly to the downtown and the eastern areas. But, and this is the, the key point, as you say, uh, Mr. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has warned that there is likely to be a Russian reaction to continued efforts by Ukraine to join the European Union. And sure enough, I've seen evidence uh, used by the Ukrainians to show that uh, using uh, satellites and drone imagery, they are seeing a substantial buildup of troops between Kharkiv here and, as you say, close to the Russian border. Uh, many thousands of uh, troops have been moved in, many hundreds of tanks and artillery pieces. And this is a city that was liberated. The Russians were pushed back, but they weren't pushed back that far, Jake. We are all here within uh, range of regular artillery and the rockets that have been landing are being fired from inside a Russian territory. So that combined with the ongoing severe and aggressive fighting going on in the east of the country is giving real cause for concern for the Ukrainians. It's why, uh, in a sense, they are continuing to call on the international community, particularly the Western nations, to supply more of that ammunition, more of those sophisticated NATO weapons that they hope can hold these uh, Russian assaults back, Jake. Sam Kiley in Kharkiv, Ukraine, thank you so much. Uh, next on this special edition of The Lead, as the nation waits for the Supreme Court to rule on abortion, CNN goes to a state with one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. See how that's forcing women to make costly decisions. Stay with us. We're back now with our politics lead. The next two weeks could become volatile across the United States. The Supreme Court due to hand down 18 rulings before its term end. Those rulings could change the contours of some of the most divisive issues in the nation, including on abortion or guns or religious liberty or immigration. CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue joins us now live. Ariane, what are the biggest decisions we are still awaiting from the bench? Right, Jake, it's not such a big deal that we have these 18 left, but these are some of the most blockbuster cases of the term. And this term is the most explosive one in decades, starting with that abortion case. It has to do with the Mississippi law that bars abortion after 15 weeks. Lower courts struck it down, said it violated Roe v. Wade. So Mississippi came to this new Supreme Court and said, let's overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, and if that were to happen, Jake, that would mean that the issue would go back to the states. And already we know that more than half the states are poised to bar abortion. So that's one big case. And of course, it's complicated by the fact that last month we got that leak draft opinion where back then there were five justices to overturn Roe v. Wade. We don't know if it's final, but that's how it was. There's also that big Second Amendment case. It has to do with a New York concealed carry law. And the big question here is how far will the justices go? This law is about 100 years old. If they strike it down, they could do it in a way that would only impact like a handful of similar laws or they could make a big statement on uh, the Second Amendment for the first time in a decade. 
and really swing for the rafters that could impact all sorts of other kinds of laws. And of course, what's interesting here is that while the Supreme Court has been deliberating this case, there have been several mass shootings. That's the backdrop to the case. Uh, and the court is also hearing a big immigration case, uh, another one on the environment and religious liberty. So big issues. The next opinion day is uh, tomorrow. And Ariane, you say that the, the way the court is going to release these rulings looks different than they have done in the past. Explain. Yeah, this, this June is like no other that I've ever covered. First of all, you've got the, the blockbuster cases that we mentioned, but then you've also got that unprecedented leak. We have never seen a draft opinion leaked before the final opinion comes down. Uh, but there's also something else going on, is that when the court releases these opinions, everything is different. Because of that leak, uh, the courtroom now is surrounded by chain link fence. Nobody is allowed in. There's 24-hour surveillance at the justice's home because they're so worried about protests. And one final thing is that usually at the end of June, we go into the court, the justices come out from behind that crimson curtain, and they read the opinions of the big cases of the term, and they read the dissents. That's not going to happen this time around. Ostensibly, because of COVID, uh, the courtroom itself is closed down, and we're simply going to get these major opinions changing the shape of society just over the Internet without the justices doing any explaining. That's, that's unprecedented, but it's also really symbolic of these fraught times at the court. It's like no other June at the court that I've ever covered. All right, Ariane DeVogue, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. In Oklahoma, it has been two months since the Republican governor signed into law one of the strictest bans on abortion in the United States. CNN's Lucy Kafanov visited Oklahoma and spoke to one woman who was forced to travel out of state alone to get the medical care that she needed. Joy and eager anticipation. As one Oklahoma family prepared to welcome its newest member into the world. You're safe to share your news, you get excited. We had the nursery, like, getting started. What should have been a happy time for Lori Brown Loftus soon turned to crushing devastation. An ultrasound revealed a rare genetic disorder. The doctor kind of explained that this disorder is not compatible with life. It was a little girl um, that, you know, she would not be viable um, that most children either die during childbirth or shortly after. With no chance of the baby surviving outside the womb, Lori made the painful choice to have an abortion. That is one of the most difficult things that I've ever had to do. It was the hardest decision. Had I been forced to carry that pregnancy knowing that I would not get to bring that child home would have caused so much trauma. This was not a decision you took lightly. I didn't make that decision lightly or easily. At 23 weeks pregnant, Lori was forced to travel out of state for the three-day invasive procedure at significant financial and emotional cost. You're going to pay with hellfire. Visibly pregnant, she describes being harassed by protesters. Just the assumption that I didn't want my baby, you know, I think that was probably the hardest part. This was a wanted child. Yeah, absolutely. This was in January, when Oklahoma had allowed abortions up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. Today, the state has one of the most far-reaching abortion bans in the nation, prohibiting the procedure at moment of fertilization, with very narrow exceptions. I don't know how much clearer we can be 
We don't believe in abortion in Oklahoma. We don't want it in our state. That puts us in a very dangerous position here in Oklahoma. It is life or death for women. Your lining looks great. That's the bladder, that's the uterus, that's the cervix. As a fertility doctor, Ellie Reshef's mission is to bring life into the world. It looks great. But he worries Oklahoma's anti-abortion law allowing private citizens to sue anyone who helps women terminate a pregnancy could have unintended consequences, impacting services like in vitro fertilization. There is a sense of panic among patients. Patients are very concerned that they will have access to in vitro fertilization because it's very difficult to read the law. And even if you read it, as I did, it's hard to interpret it. There are a lot of ambiguities. Abortion is now effectively outlawed in Oklahoma with all four of its clinics no longer providing the service. If they can afford it, women seeking an abortion will now need to travel out of state, just like Lori Brown Loftus did. It was incredibly difficult. I mean, I still have flashbacks and nightmares, and it is hard. And it is it will impact me for the rest of my life. One woman sharing her painful journey, trying to end the stigma around abortion and help others feel less alone. Well, with the Supreme Court poised to overturn or severely weaken Roe versus Wade, the legal status of abortion would be left for individual states to decide. At least 13 have so-called trigger laws that would ban the procedure the moment Roe is struck down. And that means a lot more women will be faced with a similar decision as Lori, having to travel far out of state to get abortion services. And rights activists say that places undue burden on low-income women as well as women of color. Jake. Lucy Kavanaugh, thank you so much. Airlines offered the flights months ago, then canceled them as many of you show up to the airport. What's really behind these large-scale cancellations? And why are airlines warning there will be many more? That's next. The national lead this summer travel season is off to a rather bumpy start. More than 900 flights were canceled on Sunday alone, with many more facing long delays. The disruptions coming as airline travel hits its highest level of the year. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now live from Reagan National Airport. Pete, what is behind these flight cancellations? Well, Jake, these new numbers are huge, but the cause of this is really not all that new. We've been reporting for months how airlines got a lot smaller because of the pandemic. They're facing these massive flight crew shortages, and the deck of cards really comes tumbling down when summer weather strikes. In fact, on the East Coast on Thursday and Friday, there were major thunderstorms, which was the initial trigger for all of these cancellations. Look at the numbers from FlightAware. More than 1,700 flights canceled nationwide on Thursday, more than 1,400 on Friday. Airlines unsuccessfully tried to play catch up over the weekend. On Saturday, more than 800 cancellations nationwide, more than 900 cancellations nationwide on Sunday. I want you to listen now to United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. He just spoke to our Richard Quest, and he says that the airline was well positioned for this massive resurgence in demand, but he pins some of the blame on the federal government and says, it needs to staff up when it comes to air traffic controllers to help alleviate some of these delays. Listen now. This is really frustrating for customers and unfairly frustrating for customers. And so our focus in the next few years needs in months um, and years is to build a resilient system um, that can handle these increases in demand that has some margin of error. Um, airlines can't do that alone. In fact, we almost need the governments more than we need ourselves uh, to help. But we need the help to rebuild a resilient system uh, to support this industry. 
This has been a huge weekend for air travel, maybe the biggest since the onset of the pandemic. The Juneteenth weekend, also Father's Day weekend, 2.38 million people screened at airports nationwide by TSA just yesterday. 2.44 million people screened by TSA nationwide on Friday. That number, the highest number we have seen since Thanksgiving 2021. This is all coming with an urgent message from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He met with airlines last week, told them to get their schedule acts together with July 4th on the horizon. You know, Jake, nobody is immune to this. In fact, Secretary Buttigieg had his own flight canceled over the weekend between New York and Washington, had to drive like so many people pivoted to after their flights were canceled, Jake. Pete Montine at Reagan National, thanks so much. Joining us now is Brian Kelly. He's a travel expert and founder of the Points Guy Travel Guide. Uh, thanks for joining us. As testing requirements and restrictions ease, a lot of people are taking their first summer trip since the start of the pandemic. For those who might not have flown in a while, what do they need to know about airline travel today? Yeah, it's a tough summer. Uh, you know, when you're traveling now, I highly recommend using FlightAware. Don't just track your flight. It will actually let you see where your inbound aircraft is from. And what so many people are experiencing is it might be really nice and sunny at your airport, but where your plane is coming from, weather, air traffic uh, can cause a delay. So as a consumer, you need to be ahead of the game. You can't wait for the airline to let you know that there is a delay. There are a lot of really great apps out there so you can do it yourself. And now that that testing requirement is gone for international travel, we're seeing a surge in European travel and airports that are normally really amazing, like Amsterdam and Dublin, are now crumbling under the pressure with four or five hour waits uh, to get through. So my biggest tip is add in extra time to your flights this year. Do not even try to do a one hour connection. Those days are behind us. The increase in air travel is causing a lot of disruptions. What are some of your recommendations for how people should navigate air travel this summer beyond uh, FlightAware and other apps like that? Yeah, so the biggest thing is know your rights. And unfortunately, in the U.S., we don't have a passenger bill of rights. But the airline will try to give you a voucher in many cases. If your flight is significantly delayed or canceled, get cold, hard cash refunds and then rebook yourself. But if you're traveling within Europe, know that there's EU 261 compensation if your flight is delayed or canceled. So make sure you know those rights. And also what most people don't realize is if you book your flight with a credit card in the U.S., Many have flight interruption or delay coverage. So that'll cover if you have to rent a car like Secretary Buttigieg uh, or pay for hotel rooms. The airlines are not legally obligated to cover those costs, but in many cases, your credit card will. Many airlines are preemptively canceling flights just as this busy summer season heats up. How can passengers manage that? Yep. Yeah, uh, it's tough. You know, sometimes as, as much as I hate to say it, you, you sometimes you need to call in, uh, you know, throw in the towel and, and just replan for another time. Uh, you know, I know people who have been waiting at the airport for days. Uh, you know, when in doubt, book a second backup reservation. If you really need to get somewhere, don't just trust that maybe one reservation, book a refundable or use your frequent flyer miles. Most airlines will let you cancel your frequent flyer mile ticket up until departure. So have a backup reservation in case your original plans get derailed. You've got something already planned, uh, you know, in case it does go wrong. What are you hearing from people about their biggest frustrations right now about air travel? 
One of the biggest things is lost luggage. You know, Heathrow has 12,000 missing bags that have yet to be processed due to staffing shortages. So my biggest tip, I use Apple AirTags, put it in your luggage and it'll tell you exactly where in the world your luggage is. And that can be the difference between having, you know, finding your bag and telling the airline, oh no, it's in Heathrow. And you can actually show it to the agents and find your bags. Otherwise, I know people who are waiting over a month to get their bag back. Apple AirTags, that's what they are? Yep, yeah, it's a little device you put in your bag and it'll ping you and show you. You can even see them loading it onto the flight uh, when you're on the plane. All right, I'm going to order one right now. Brian Kelly, thanks so much. This month of pride has been smeared by extremism and intimidation and violence directed at our nation's LGBTQ community. We're going to take a closer look at what's behind that all. That's next. In the national lead, a surge in violence against the LGBTQ community seen as the country celebrates Pride Month. Several parades and events facing disruptions and attacks from domestic extremist groups. CNN's Jason Carroll takes a look at the attacks and the rise in hate speech targeting the community. The arrest of members of the white supremacist group Patriot Front near a Pride event in Idaho came as no surprise to those tracking hate groups who say they have seen a steady rise in hate speech and attacks directed at the LGBTQ community. These aren't isolated. We can see a pattern, and the pattern has really been been building. Um, I think it's something that we're going to have to continue to monitor very closely going into the end of Pride Month. Sam Jones is with the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. The project found anti-LGBTQ plus mobilization in the U.S. increased more than four times from 2020 to 2021. This year's incidents of political violence targeting that community already exceeds the total number of attacks reported last year. The Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, some of whose members stormed the Capitol on January 6th, are some of the same groups targeting LGBTQ plus events. Who brought the pedophile? Earlier this month, authorities say Proud Boys members showed up at a drag queen story hour in San Lorenzo, California, shouting transphobic slurs. These people should be put to death. That sentiment echoed in Texas, but this time in a sermon at a church outside of Dallas. They should be lined up against the wall and shot in the back of the head. Extremism researchers say disinformation and a wave of legislation targeting the LGBTQ plus community is fueling the rise in attacks. Um, Through the rest of the year and going into the midterms, where I think this is just going to be one among multiple issues where um, far right groups like the Proud Boys and others are going to be trying to um, to ramp up tensions and, and uh, ultimately possibly, you know, escalate uh, violence. Here in New York City, site of one of the largest pride celebrations in the world this weekend, organizers are keenly aware of the rise in hate crimes. It's disheartening. I think uh, we're living in a pretty unprecedented time. Um, Why do you think that is? Um, I just think that the division and the rhetoric is uh, at a whole new level. Organizers say they have security measures in place for Pride. The city's police department saying it provides a significant and complex counterterrorism overlay to the events and celebrations around Pride. NYPD's alert posture in these matters has remained ever vigilant. And Jake, here at the Stonewall Inn, which is the site of the 1969 riot, which 
really started the modern day gay rights movement. I spoke to an activist just a short while ago, and he said that despite the rise in hate crimes and all of the attacks and all of the intimidation, he says that that is not going to prevent people like him um, from stopping all of the gains that the gays have made over the past few decades. Jake. Jason Carroll, thank you so much. Strong reaction today after a Republican Senate candidate released an ad suggesting he wanted to hunt down rhinos, Republicans in name only. But did he cross a line with the violent imagery? Stay with us. Welcome to this special edition of The Lead on this Juneteenth celebration. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Republican extremism, one of the largest state GOPs in the country, says Biden didn't win, that gays and lesbians deserve no protections, and that the Voting Rights Act should be repealed. This as a leading Republican Senate candidate in Missouri with a personal history of allegations of violence, launches a shocking social media video with lots of guns. Plus, CNN goes well outside the D.C. Beltway to examine the gun debate. Here's some of the unconventional thinking from the heartland that's influencing the conversation. And leading this hour, new video from Russian TV shows Americans captured in Ukraine. One saying in an interview he was beaten. And now their reported location becomes a serious concern. Let's go straight to CNN's Ben Wiedemann joining us now live from Kramatorsk, Ukraine with more on this. Ben, CNN has decided not to show the videos of the two American captives what do we know about where they are and who is holding them? Well, they are, we believe, in the Donetsk People's Republic. That's a pro-Russian breakaway part of this country. Uh, and, of course, we've seen there's various interviews have been conducted with them. One of them, a 50-minute edited interview on RT, previously known as Russia Today, that state-affiliated, state-sponsored uh, channel in Russia. They were also interviewed by a Serbian pro-Russian YouTube channel as well. And in that interview, uh, Alexander Druki is asked, how, how have you been treated? And he says, I've been beaten several times. Now, they went missing on June 9th after a battle outside Kharkiv in eastern uh, Ukraine. So that's basically all we know at the moment. Now, the Russians initially denied any knowledge of their whereabouts. Now, obviously, that they've appeared on Russia Today as well as other forums that, uh, yes, the Russians are sort of de facto acknowledging that, that they, their allies, so to speak, have them. What are U.S. officials saying about bringing these two U.S. citizens home? Well, in fact, the State Department put out a statement saying that they have seen photos and videos of these two U.S. citizens reportedly captured by Russian military forces in Ukraine. We are closely monitoring the situation and our hearts go out to their families during this difficult time. We are in contact with Ukrainian authorities, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and with the families themselves due to privacy considerations we have no further comment on these cases. This is typical of State Department uh, statements about, for instance, I've seen it before with the Americans being held in Syria as well. There clearly is a lot of back-channel communications going on, uh, but State Department officials on these very sensitive issues tend to be quite tight-lipped. Jake? 
Yeah. Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Bunny Drukey. She's the mother of Alex Drukey, one of the Americans being held captive in Ukraine. You just saw his picture there. Um, Bunny, thanks for joining us. So short video clips of your son have appeared on Russian media. We at CNN are choosing not to broadcast the video because they show him speaking under duress. He, he does look to be in relatively good shape in the footage, but, but Alex does reveal that his captors have beaten him a few times. He also addressed you personally in one of the videos. Um, tell us your response to seeing these videos, to hearing from him. Well, you can see that the one where he addressed me directly really made me happy. I play it over and over and over again, especially right before I go to bed. Um, you know, it's just, I'm sorry, it's just wonderful to hear his voice and, and see him. Uh, I've chosen not yeah. to look at those other videos because they are propaganda. Before Alex left, he told me that he needed to speak very directly and frankly with me, that if he were captured, they would be forcing him to make statements. I was not to believe anything except I love you, mom. And that um, that videos like that might show him being mistreated is the best way, I guess, to say it. And, and for me, he'd rather that I not watch it. And so I'm honoring his request for that. I'm trusting the State Department to, I know that they're watching them and they're analyzing them and I'm trusting that process. What are you hearing from U.S. officials about Alex's and Andy's captivity? Uh, that they are working behind the scenes. They are diligently working. They assured us that we would not hear from them today it being a federal holiday, but that didn't mean they were taking the day off. They would still be working to um, arrange for Alex and Andy to come home eventually. They're still working at verifying where they are and who has them. Analysts say that being held by these Russian-backed separatists is, is a potentially concerning development because the head of the self-proclaimed government there has previously said that prisoner exchanges of foreign fighters would be out of the question. Um, is that what the State Department is telling you as well? Is that a concern? I don't know whether they're concerned about that, but they told me just to trust what they're doing, that they are doing everything that they can uh, to get the boys back home. So I have no idea what they have access to, but CNN is an international network. What would you like to say to Alex if, if he were watching right now? I would like to tell Alex that I'm taking good care of his dog and that I'm being brave and doing exactly what he asked me to do, and that I love him with all of my heart. And Bunny, how are you hanging in there? I know this has got to be really awful. Well, you know, Jake, this isn't the first time that he's been in a war zone, uh, because when he was with the U.S. military, um, he wasn't to Iraq this last tour, especially in and, um, you know, he's been in harm's way before. And even hiking the Appalachian Trail, there's bears on that trail. And you can also fall down mountains. So, you know, I'm, I'm aware that, that he could be hurt. But I also know that Alex is in 
tip-top condition. Yeah. Funny Drukey, it's always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, the Sound of Resistance, a Ukrainian official shared this video of two soldiers singing the Ukrainian version of Bella Ciao, which Italians famously sang to protest fascism during World War II. Now some Russians are taking a stand in their own way. CNN's Fred Plaikin meets with a priest in Russia, one who is offering Ukrainians stuck there shelter and safe passage to the European Union. The church, a single bare room in a former factory in St. Petersburg. But Reverend Grigory Michnov-Vaitenko's tiny parish is a humanitarian powerhouse. He's helped scores of Ukrainians displaced by what Moscow calls its special military operation get to the European Union. There are thousands, thousands of people because every day, every day, a few hundred people go. uh, Most of the Ukrainians sheltering in this hostel in St. Petersburg are from Mariupol, a city almost completely destroyed by artillery, airstrikes and urban combat. On March 9th, the city's maternity clinic was hit, a now infamous incident that killed four people and wounded scores, including Victoria Shishkina, who lost her unborn baby. They did a cesarean operation. There was panic everywhere, but they said, they have to save me, she says. They saw that the child had no more vital signs. They tried to pull him out and reanimate him, but the explosion hit me right in the belly and they couldn't save him. A double tragedy, as her husband Vladimir was also hit by shelling as he was trying to visit Victoria, killing a friend walking with him. I heard a loud ring in my ears and I thought to myself, I'm dead too, he says. But I looked down at my leg and my kneecap had been torn off. I crawled to a fence and screamed, help, help. Vladimir's leg later had to be amputated. Thanks to Reverend Grigori and his network of volunteers, they made it to St. Petersburg, where, like so many, they stay free of charge at this hostel waiting to leave Russia. Ukraine has accused Russia of targeting civilians in Mariupol. Russia denies those claims and instead blamed Ukraine. Bogdan Stanchenkov and his family also escaped Mariupol. They lived near the Mariupol Drama Theater, which was bombed in mid-March, reportedly killing hundreds, though the exact number remains unknown. As his neighborhood was being flattened, Bogdan took his wife, his son, and his eight-month-old baby girl Kira and fled, ending up in southwestern Russia. Like everyone here, they want to get to the European Union. Very many people... Reverend Grigori says Russia does not prevent Ukrainians from leaving the country, but due to a lack of information, some end up in remote regions of this massive country. They have no information. This is the main problem. They have no information what they can do, what is possible to do, where they can go. The costs of moving so many Ukrainians, some severely wounded, to the EU are massive. Reverend Grigori relies on donations, mostly by Russian hospitals, companies, business people and ordinary citizens, some opposed to what Russia calls the special military operation, but afraid to speak out. Reverend Grigori left the Russian Orthodox Church in 2014. 
Its head, Patriarch Kirill, is a staunch ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin and supporter of the special military operation. For, for me, it was not possible to stay there when they have, have a milita- military church. Reverend Gregory says he doesn't fear speaking openly about his opposition to Russia's actions in Ukraine. He only fears God. As he sees Victoria and Vladimir off, they've gotten the go to head to Germany, where Vladimir is set to receive a prosthetic limb. A bit nervous, but also grateful for the chance to start a new life, thanks to the help of Reverend Grigori and his band of supporters. And Jake, a little bit of good news. Victoria and her husband Vladimir, they did actually make it across the border. They took the land route to the Estonian border and have since taken a flight to Germany, where Vladimir is obviously hoping to get that prosthetic limb and obviously both of them looking to start a new life in the European Union. They said possibly at some point also return to Ukraine as well. Also, that other family that we showcased of Bogdan Stanchanov, they also made it across the border. They are also now in Germany. But if you look at uh, Reverend Grigori, he does so much important work. He says he's already working on the next bunch of Ukrainians who want to get to the European Union, among them a person that basically needs an ambulance to take them all the way from the south of Russia to the European Union. It's a huge logistical undertaking. It requires a lot of money. But as you can see also, there are a lot of Russians out there who are, who are helping and who are trying to help these Ukrainians get to where they want to go, Jake. Fred Pleikin in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, political turmoil in Israel. Why the country must now hold its fifth election in fewer than four years. And here in the United States, the power of an endorsement. How much will it matter as Donald Trump asks Alabama Republicans to follow his impulsiveness? Stay with us. Topping our world lead, a huge shakeup in Israeli politics. The prime minister and foreign minister agreeing to dissolve the Israeli parliament or Knesset. This means Israeli voters could be headed to their fifth election in fewer than four years. CNN's Hadassah Gold joins us now live from Jerusalem. Hadassah, the prime minister here essentially decided to fall on his own sword. Explain what happened. Well, this government has been in power just one year and one week, but essentially they understood they had no political future. The government has been fragile, teetering for weeks, especially after two members of Naftali Bennett's own right-wing party defected in recent weeks and months, leaving this with essentially a minority government not able to really pass anything. But I think few expected this to happen the way it did, where the prime minister and the foreign minister dissolving their own government. Essentially, Jake, taking that pleasure away from former prime minister, now opposition leader, Benjamin Netanyahu. The way this plan works now is that they will bring this vote to the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, next week. And when it passes, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid will become a caretaker prime minister, and this will likely trigger elections. The fifth round of elections Israelis will see in less than four weeks. Those elections will likely take place in the fall. This, of course, provides an opening, though, still for Netanyahu to come back into power, despite facing an ongoing corruption trial. But yet still, the polls do not show the Netanyahu's block, although the strongest right now would still have that majority needed to have a stable government. Jake. Hadass, President Biden was planning to travel to Israel next month on a trip to the region. Will this affect his visit? 
Well, as I noted now under this plan, Yair Lapid will become prime minister potentially in the next week, meaning it will be Lapid who will be welcoming President Biden on the red carpet next month and not Naftali Bennett as planned. But from what we understand from our colleagues in the White House, President Biden still plans to make this trip to Israel. He will also be visiting the West Bank and Saudi Arabia. And this from a White House official saying that we have a strategic relationship with Israel that goes beyond any one government. The president looks forward to the visit next month. So it seems as though it's still going to go on as planned, although a much different political situation than likely they were expecting. All right, Hadass Gold live from Jerusalem. Thanks so much. Speaking of our colleagues in the White House, let's turn to another politics lead. The White House is considering a gas tax holiday targeting a possible July 4th announcement. CNN's Phil Manningly is with us live. Phil, what do we know about that? Well, we know White House officials, Jake, for months have been looking at every possible option they can take to try and bring gas prices down, gas prices that have hit more than $5 a gallon in many places in the country. And the president in Rehoboth Beach earlier today told reporters he would make a decision about backing a federal gas tax holiday by the end of this week. Now, that is an 18.3 cent tax on each gallon of gas. Here's the rub. He can't do it unilaterally. It would take congressional action. They don't believe they would have 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to move that forward. Some Democrats are also concerned about it as well, concerned it wouldn't trickle down to consumers, concerned uh, it would create problems in the funding of roads. However, the administration very clearly looking for any option they can find at this point in time, whether or not the president decides to back that, an idea they've been considering now for several months, he says he'll decide by the end of this week. Speaking of President Biden in Rehoboth, uh, my understanding is that uh, somebody asked him about the likelihood of a recession and it was a it was a not a sunny response from the president. Tell us more. Yeah, we saw administration officials all weekend push back on the idea that a recession is imminent and the president seemed to take a similar tack today. Take a listen. I'm saying uh, recession even more likely than ever. Not the majority of them aren't saying that. Come on, don't make things up, okay? Now you sound like a Republican politician. I'm joking. That was a joke. But all kidding aside, no, I don't think it is. And Jake, the president said he was joking, but White House officials are frustrated that economists and people covering economists seem to believe a recession is now almost imminent. At this point in time, obviously, they make the point that U.S. jobs, the way the U.S. has come back, uh, with the exception of inflation from the pandemic, is unrivaled pretty much anywhere in the world. It's put the U.S. in a very strong position. However, the president said he did speak with former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers this morning. That's, he said that before he said he didn't believe uh, a recession was imminent. Summers has said it's very likely there will be a recession in the next year or two, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Coming up next, what transgender bathrooms and abortion rights have to do with AR-15 style rifles? Unconventional thinking pushed by a gun rights advocate in Oklahoma may be influencing debate in Washington. How? We'll tell you. The politics lead in the wake of the Uvalde Elementary School massacre and other recent mass shootings. Many Americans have called for tighter gun regulations. And of course, there are many activists calling for the opposite. As CNN's Ellie Reeve reports for us now, members of a pro-gun rights group in Oklahoma say they're willing to go to extreme lengths to protect their right to carry a gun. This right here, that's an, I'll even let you hold it. You want to hold that? That's a knife right there. Okay. Push your thumb up and push that button up right there. Just push it up. Come on. Toughen up. Come on. Come on. Well, I'm left-handed. Are you? There you go. Whoa. Okay. All right. And then you pull it down and it retracts. Those were illegal till 2016. 
and I made sure that they were legal to carry and then carry them in the state capitol. The, Why? Uh, because that's for an act of self-defense. In my vehicle, I have an AR-15. I carry a firearm on me virtually everywhere I go. But that is a nine millimeter compact Smith & Wesson. And then you got a body cam. We got a body cam. Don Spencer took over the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association in 2016. The group claims it's helped pass almost 40 different pieces of pro-gun legislation. We are not merely a Second Amendment group, a gun group. We are a liberty group that realizes it may take guns to maintain that liberty. Many Americans saw the second elementary school massacre in a decade and thought there should be more restrictions on guns. We wanted to know why these guys saw the same thing and thought there should be more guns, more openly, and everywhere. Can you explain, like, what are you afraid of? Because to an outsider, it's like you have all Republican state government. Like, why? Why? Well, afraid's the wrong word. Okay. Concern. It's not so much about guns. It's about our God-given rights. A good guy or gal with a gun is the only answer to a bad guy with a gun. I've heard that said a lot, but I don't know that it's true. Can you give me a logical reason that it wouldn't be true? It didn't work in Uvalde. It was a gun-free zone. It was in a school. There are police officers. Yeah, there were 19 police officers who had orders from their bosses to stand down. We wanted to talk more with Thompson, so we went to his hometown the next day. I think I'm the only person in OK2A with a Prius. I get kidded about it all the time. Every time there's a shooting, the left immediately starts beating the drum. More gun control, more gun control, more gun control. Is it possible it's because they don't want there to be as many shootings? I, yes, I'll admit that that is exactly their motivation. Our basic disagreement is how to stop the shootings. There is no way that they can get all the guns. There's more guns than people in America. so. It's a problem that's going to be there forever, no matter what kind of gun control you put on. Unless, do you want a police state? Do you want people break, do you want authorities? I, but I feel like you're proposing a private police state. Not private police. If everyone everywhere is carrying guns all the time, mm -hmm. you don't feel that's a type well, of police state? They're not out there policing. They're out there prepared for self-defense or to defend others. If Joe Biden's world, I would not be able to defend myself. Is he proposing an elimination of all guns? Yes. Is he? Yes. I didn't, I didn't catch that announcement. That's the, that's the ultimate goal here. You know it's the goal. I know it's the goal. Let's quit. Let's I quit don't know around. that. Yes, you do. Terry Thompson right here on the front row. Yeah, he's a rock star. So what would you do to stop mass shootings? we got to quit blaming what's used uh, for the weapon. And, and these types of things and go to deal with the person. People are confused how many genders there are. They're confused on what bathroom they're supposed to use. They're confused on whether a life is of value even if it's not been born. I mean, are you confused <clears throat> on what restroom to use? No, but we had to pass laws in Oklahoma to make sure boys will use boys' restrooms, girls will use girls. And what does that have to do with an AR-15? Because if you don't respect uh, life, you're not gonna respect anything. Okay, so you see mass shootings as, you know, a cultural trickle-down effect from abortion and transgender rights? Uh, yes. Actually, it's the breakdown of the family. In several states, red flag laws allow courts to temporarily confiscate the guns of someone believed to be a danger to themselves or others. Oklahoma passed an anti-red flag law in 2020. How do you propose, if not this red flag law, keeping guns out of the hands of the mentally ill? Uh, 
by the mentally ill being segregated from society if they're a threat to themselves or society. We may have to go back to institutionalization, which was left back in the 80s. But like, would it be before they committed a violent crime or? Well, I don't know how you, I don't know how you would ever stop someone that's given no signal that just goes to decide to commit a violent crime. I don't know how you do that. You might be wondering, do these guys ever fear that their loved ones could be victims of a mass shooting? The answer is yes. They think about it all the time. By the way, my children were home educated. We had drills at our own home for someone trying to break into our house. What were those like? Well, they saw uh, someone show up on our porch at about 11 or 12 o'clock one night, unannounced. Okay. And so did your kids in that moment prepare your firearms? Yes, because when I looked through the door, I said, gun up. My wife goes to one room, she grabs a gun, the kids go back. My daughter had, she was, I don't know, 9, 10, 11. She had a 32 caliber in her bedroom and we had them gunned up and prepared. And we trained them that if they hear my voice, obviously it's time to lay the weapon down before I went to that part of the house. Uh, if they didn't hear my voice, someone was gonna get shot or my wife's voice or their sibling's voice. Okay, so, so part of the drill is you walk through the house and what you're saying, like, I'm walking towards your bedroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm waiting for their acknowledgement because I don't get shot. Wow. See, that to me seems like a scary way to live. Well, a uh, scarier way to live is what would it be like had the person penetrated inside the house and harmed me? What would that be? What would that psychology be for my children? We went to a gun range to get the views of people who shoot but are not activists. I have guns at home. I'm at the gun range to go shoot guns now. But they need to go back to before when it was not as easy to get a gun. Uh, we have two guns. We have a uh, 20 gauge shotgun uh, for home defense, and then we have, uh, we just got an AR-15. There's a lot of common sense gun laws and stuff that I support, that a lot of the people I know support. You know, I've held the same kind of views on guns for a while. Although, I have never like necessarily had the strong desire to go out and purchase and own a gun until recently. There's so much division in the United States right now, and I don't know how you fix that. But you can't have people throwing the gasoline on the fire, too. You know? And you think uh, gun restrictions would be gas on the fire? Yes. We're not gun nuts, we're liberty nuts. The only reason we're concerned about guns is that's the only thing that protects the rest of the constitutional rights. And that's why the founders put it in there. And, and why didn't they make it number one? because free speech is number one. And free speech is being assaulted in America. Why isn't the Second Amendment stopping it? Because if it gets that bad, then it's gonna be in the streets. That's why I'm working so hard politically, because we have to solve these problems. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Oklahoma City. And our thanks to Ellie Reeve for that report. Coming up next, Republicans on an alarming new level of extremism. The candidate today who wanted to hunt rhinos, while Republicans in Texas adopting a very different kind of platform. Stay with us. In our politics lead, not afraid of Donald Trump. Congressman Mo Brooks, Republican of Alabama, says Trump is loyal to, quote, no one but himself. Brooks said this ahead of tomorrow's Alabama Senate runoff race. Trump had endorsed Brooks in the race, but then ditched him for his opponent, Katie Britt, 
as she started gaining in the polls. Britt is the former chief of staff for incumbent Senator Richard Shelby, who is retiring. CNN's Kristen Holmes is in Montgomery, Alabama, where the power of the Trump endorsement will once again be tested before voters, as will the degree to which voters can follow Trump's current thinking, given his impulsiveness and occasional fickleness. He was one of former President Donald Trump's staunchest allies. Go get him, huh? A leading promoter of Trump's 2020 election lies. Joe Biden lost and President Trump won the Electoral College. Even delivering a speech at the now infamous Stop the Steal rally that preceded the deadly January 6th riot at the Capitol. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. But as Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks heads into Tuesday's runoff to be the state's Republican candidate for Senate, he is doing so without the support of the former president. Learning the hard way that when it comes to Trump, loyalty... If given the opportunity, I will get even with some people that were disloyal to me. ...is not always a two-way street. After initially endorsing the conservative firebrand... We're going to elect our friend Mo Brooks to the U.S. Senate. Now Trump is backing Brooks' rival Katie Britt, the former chief of staff to retiring Republican Senator Richard Shelby. The former president once claimed Britt was, quote, not in any way qualified for the job. But that was when he was behind Brooks. As Brooks' campaign struggled, Trump jumped ship and accused Brooks of going, quote, woke for these comments. There are some people who are despondent about the voter fraud and election theft in 2020. Folks, put that behind you. Put that behind you. Yes. Brooks says he learned of Trump's decision from a reporter seeking comment. He didn't have the uh, courtesy or the uh, chutzpah or whatever uh, to let me know first. Uh, so it somewhat blindsided me this morning. Despite the embarrassing episode, Brooks has continued to run as MAGA Mo, and insisting his refusal to say the 2020 results could be overturned was partly to blame. I knew that when I gave him straight shooting legal advice um, that it would perturb him because it's not what he wanted to hear. And I knew it would put my endorsement at risk, but I thought it was the honorable thing to do, so I did it. Even so, Brooks still tried to win back Trump's support ahead of the runoff. Game on! But Trump ultimately sided with Britt, who was widely seen as the favorite on Tuesday after receiving the most votes in the May primary. And this is a time in which the former President Trump is really looking to shore up his status as kingmaker in the Republican Party, particularly after a series of high-profile defeats last month. Jake? All right, Kristen Holmes in Montgomery, Alabama. Thanks so much. Let's discuss. Let me start with USC Cup. There's another Senate race on everyone's mind today. Missouri's disgraced ex-governor and current Senate candidate, Eric Greitens, released a new social media ad today. It starts with him holding what appears to be a long gun. He's standing on a neighborhood street. He talks about hunting rhinos. That stands for Republicans in name only. He then barges into a house with a tactical unit, walks in amid smoke, and talks more about hunting rhinos. At the end, it shows this graphic with the word rhino hunting permit, no bagging limit, no tagging limit. The ad is, is violent. Twitter later labeled it as violating their rules about abusive behavior, but left it up because he's a Senate candidate, presumably. Facebook removed the ad. You would think a candidate who has been accused of spousal and child abuse by his ex-wife, not to mention that entire scandal that got him in, in, impeached when he was governor uh, in, in Missouri and involving 
alleged sexual abuse. Um, You'd think a candidate like that might consider a less violent appeal to voters. Uh, I guess you'd think, but I don't think there was a whole lot of self-reflection or caution here. I wouldn't even call this ad irresponsible of Greitens. Uh, Irresponsible to me means you just didn't consider the consequences it could have. I think the consequences were very well considered. And looking at his response to the backlash against the ad, he's really leaning into it. He's very smugly, you know, promoting it. I think he considered the consequences, which could which could very well be violent, turning people against Republicans in name only, I guess, people like me. Um, the thing that's so chilling, though, about this ad is, you know, for decades, we've had ads where rhetorical violence was implied, you know, targeting political opponents, you know, by by maybe getting them out of office. This seems to target like citizens, just people who disagree with you. And I'm not sure what the metaphor actually means. What do you mean you're going to hunt them? You can't you can't remove citizens from from office. They're not they're not in office. So what does hunting all of us mean? And without, you know, bag limits and tag limits and expiration dates. So just in perpetuity, we're we're going to be hunted. It's really crazy, creepy um, and and chilling. And I have no doubt it could lead to some violence. And, and Bakari, we should note, I mean, this is a time when there was a lot of real fear about violence uh, against politicians of all stripes. Uh, there was that uh, deranged left-wing would-be assassin against Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice, a few weeks ago. Uh, and obviously, there have been death threats against any number of politicians, uh, you know, ranging from Nancy Pelosi uh, to Liz Cheney. Uh, I don't even under, I mean, obviously, Greitens knows this. He doesn't care about this. Uh, he just wants to create buzz. And I, I've seen some Republicans speculate it might even work for him. It's going to work. I mean, we're talking about it here right now. Um, people are talking about it online. Even when I was talking about it, I dare not retweet it. You know, I think, though, and what people should take from this ad is the fact that individuals who have a past and a history of domestic abuse, such as Eric Greitens, should not own weapons because they have a tendency, uh, whether, or not they, whether or not they verbalize it or not, to be further abusive. Uh, and in this case, to actually want to solicit uh, the killing of others. You, you cannot take his ad lightly uh, dealing with the past of who this man was. But the larger question, though, Jake, is what Republican is going to stand up for this? And, and not just Essie, who, who always stands up for what I believe to be right, even though we may disagree politically. But is Mitch McConnell going to say something? He wants to be a member of his caucus. Is Cornyn going to say something? He wants to be a member of his caucus. Rand Paul going to say something? You know, the question is, are these individuals going to stand up and say something? And we take such quick action as we should to protect the the lives of of people like Justice Kavanaugh. And we should do those things to not only protect them, but their family. But we still do not have laws in place to keep people like Eric Greitens from owning a weapon. He should not be able to do so. And here we are. And and, uh, S.E., we should note that this is part of an overall trend in extremism that we're seeing Uh, Over the weekend, Texas Republicans, as a party platform, the largest, I think it's the largest state GOP in the country, uh, they passed this new platform which says President Biden was not legitimately elected, uh, that they want to require students to learn, quote, about the humanity of the preborn child. Uh, The party platform labels homosexuality an abnormal lifestyle. 
They called a repeal the 1965 Voting Rights Act. They also called a change the Constitution to cement nine Supreme Court justices. They called to repeal the 16th Amendment, which created federal income tax. They called to abolish the Federal Reserve. And as if this list wasn't enough, the platform also says we urge the Texas legislature to pass a bill in its next session requiring a referendum to determine whether or not the state of Texas should reassert its status as an independent nation. Now, the the final vote still needs to be certified, but it's rare for changes to be made. It's 2022. The Texas GOP is really talking about ending the Voting Rights Act and seceding from the country? It is wild, wild stuff. And, you know, this doesn't become law, but it certainly gets codified in the official Texas Republican state party platform. This isn't this isn't like CPAC where everything's sort of unofficial. It's just an event. This is actual an actual convention where these things were being discussed. Now, I will say, I, I think this probably represents the farthest edge of the far right in Texas and not even the majority of Republicans in Texas. I'll remind you that the, the Republican passed abortion law in Texas that effectively criminalizes it isn't even isn't even popular in Texas. So I don't think this is representative uh, necessarily of, of, of where Texas is. We know that Texas is sort of purpling. Uh, but I think, you know, at least where the Texas Republican Party wants to go, it is going to the extremes, completely out of step with certainly where the rest of the country is. And I, I would even imagine even where most Texans are. Bakari, your response? No, I agree. I mean, I, I hope Essie's right. But at the end of the day, I mean, you, you don't have individuals who are willing to step up and say this is wrong. You don't have individuals willing to step up and push back. So, I mean, although I hope Essie's right right now, this has to be. We lost Bakari Sellers. I imagine he said he was going to say something that has to be condemned or something like that. Bakari and Essie, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up. How long a so-called heat dome will be over much of the U.S.? Stay with us. In our national lead, the southern loop of Yellowstone National Park is set to reopen Wednesday, though with limited capacity. And in two weeks, the northern loop is expected to reopen. This after last week's record rainfall and flooding forced all of the park's entrances to close. Some roads and bridges were swept away, and neighboring cities were also inundated with the floodwaters. A new dangerous heat wave will impact the U.S. this week. About 70% of the population will see temperatures over 90 degrees, and nearly 20% will see them over 100 degrees. This is already creating dangerous conditions. At least three roads buckled in Waseca County, Minnesota. Let's bring in CNN meteorologist Jennifer Gray. Jennifer, where is this heat wave heading, and how long is it anticipated it will last? Well, it's going to last through much of the week. It's starting in the northern plains, the upper Midwest, and then it's going to shift to the Ohio Valley and eventually down to the southeast, right on the hills of the last heat wave we experienced last week. Already have excessive heat warnings in place, heat advisories where the heat index feels close to 110 for areas in the extreme northern section of the U.S. This is particularly dangerous in this area because a lot more people do not have air conditioning, and so it is going to be really rough for a couple of days. 
Above normal temperatures will slowly start to head to the east. We have temperatures uh, that feels like 106 in Sioux Falls, 97 in Fargo, North Platte near the century mark. And we're looking at New Orleans with a heat index of 100 for today. In many areas, we could break 100 potential high temperature records throughout the week, many of those in the east. So, Jake, it is going to be a rough couple of days, especially across the north and the east. All right, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, marking 157 years since people in power allowed the last of the black slaves to be freed in America. Stay with us. In our national lead on this special Juneteenth edition of The Lead, today Vice President Kamala Harris made a stop at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture to speak with children about Juneteenth. Take a listen. Today is a day to celebrate the principle of freedom. With the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War, it required America to really ask itself, who is free? How do we define freedom? Juneteenth is the oldest known U.S. celebration of the end of slavery and the youngest federal holiday signed into law just last year by President Biden. Juneteenth marks June 19th, 1865, when a Union major general announced the end of slavery in Galveston, Texas. Slaves there were unaware of their freedom, however, until two years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.